Recipes are more than documents of a dish. They're compelling little chronicles of the lives of the people who write them, the cultures, the situations, celebrations, and histories behind them. Chefs and other people in the culinary community tend to be passionate about what they do and spurred by a motivating force that drives them. If you scratch the surface, almost all of them have a specific and compelling story. Life, Death, and Dinner asks these food-passionate professionals what it is in their histories, a person, a place, an event, that most motivated them to do what they do with food. Because food is sustenance in more ways than one, and every recipe tells a story. I'm Liza Schoenfein, and this is Life, Death, and Dinner. Grand Daisy Bakery in New York's Tribeca neighborhood is a bake shop and cafe where the downtown community typically gathers over coffee, pastries, and panini, or stops in to pick up thin Roman-style flatbreads and gorgeous loaves of artisanal bread. Monica von Thun Calderon opened Grand Daisy in 2006 with the mission of preserving the art of handcrafted bread. Equally important to her was a commitment to hiring, maintaining, and nurturing the careers of a diverse staff from around the world. Monica had originally intended to become an anthropologist, and I was interested in the story of how she ended up in the bakery business and how she developed her very specific work ethic. But given the timing, with the world sheltering in due to the coronavirus, of course I also had to find out how she was adapting in the midst of an alarming health crisis when restaurants, bars, and cafes are closing to the public, putting so very many people out of work. I spoke with Monica over Zoom to find out what she was doing to keep her business alive while trying to protect her precious, severely diminished team. Hi, Monica. Thank you for joining me during this challenging time. Hi, Liza. I'm glad to have a chance to talk to you. So before we discuss what you're doing to keep your business afloat during this period of, for lack of a better term, sheltering in place, I'd like to hear about Grand Daisy, how you started the business, what it is exactly, because I know it's more than a bake shop and cafe, um, why you named it Grand Daisy, and what your priorities were in terms of your product and the business practices you maintain. Oh. That's a big question. That's a lot. That's a big one. It's a lot. I'll try. The Grand Daisy Bakery. So we've been here since about 2006 as a, as a bakery on its own. Before that, I had a bakery with a partner um, at the Sullivan Street Bakery, and we split. And uh, I um, went off on my own and um, named my bakery after my grandmother, Daisy, who we called as children. We always called her Grand Daisy. And um, our whole neighborhood called her Grand Daisy, so we figured it was a an easy thing that people could say and I wanted it to be something that would roll off people's tongues and they could speak about her and refer to the bakery. It, it was a, at the time and even now it's a great thing because I can walk into the bakery and think of my grandmother and she was a very special person in my life so it's, it's a very very powerful name for me. And, oh. uh, and where, where was that. she from? I'm sorry to interrupt. So my, grandmother, my grandmother was born in Potosi in Bolivia a small a mining town um, and she had an amazing life and she would all say oh what am I but just a little you know and just a, you know, a pueblerina a little a small town lady from Potosi in Bolivia but in fact she had she, was, she ended up traveling the world and knew so much and came to the United States in her 50s to take care of my brother and I and learned English and developed a whole world of 
a whole community in Colorado of people who loved her and would come to our house. And it's kind of amazing. So even so, when I turned 50, I was like, oh, this is when my grandmother's second life started. So who am I to kid myself? You know, there's so much is possible always. So she was an amazing person. Oh, that's um, an amazing uh, way to look at things. Wow, that she started a new life when she was 50 in the she States. Did. She left everything. It was amazing, actually. And then she came here and she learned how to cook. I mean, I, uh, well, this somewhat of an aside, but I have one of her old recipe books and I was trying to do one of the recipes and there are all these notes and it's like 350 grams of butter or something like that. And then it said, oh, but in the United States, it's a, it's a pack and two, it's two sticks and a half or something, you know, like she had these little translations because she had to adapt everything to the stuff we have here. It was really interesting. And so, she did. That's amazing. And she did. Yeah. It's fun. Was your grandmother a good baker? So my grandmother was a great baker and a great cook, and she uh, she would make, um, my first panettone I ever had was her panettone, which she made, and she also had recipes that her family, that my great-grandmother had brought in from Argentina, so we make this, at the bakery, we make a torta de capas, which is um, layers of cake with dulce de leche in between, and she... Um, and she, she has that recipe, which is awesome, which we make here. And she made that. That was my birthday cake. And then she cooked, you know, she made dinner all the time. So we eat all these great Bolivian dishes. But also she would, you know, pull recipes out and adjust things and kind of just a survivalist in the food world. <laughs> That's incredible. And let me ask you, um, because you said that um, she cooked, I mean, she was from Bolivia and made Bolivian food. But Grand Daisy is more Italian influenced, isn't it? Well, so Grand Daisy, uh, uh, we we um, is really just the offshoot of Sullivan Street Bakery because we had a product line and we made all these um, amazing loaves of bread. And when I opened the business, we had agreed we'd just do our own thing, and there was really no ownership over the recipe of flour, water, and yeast, um, or wild yeast, no less. The um, so our bread was always influenced by, and, and the reason that actually the Italian bread came out was I had spent some time in Italy as an anthropologist doing research and had come, had my life changed by, like many people, by the experience of living in Italy and eating Italian food in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. And it just, um, and so when I met the baker of Sullivan Street, Jim Leahy, he had also had his Italian experience and we both wanted to reproduce those great things like the the joy, the um, the work to live, not live to work, the mm -hmm. eating and enjoying things of like less than five ingredients in anything makes it amazing and using really fresh, um, good ingredients and making it affordable. At the time uh, when we opened, Echepanis was, was it Echepanis? Yeah, Echepanis was the big bakery and it was so expensive. I remember, and Dean and DeLuca had, you know, was relatively new and it was also very expensive. And we we're like, so we're gonna expensive. make a bread that everybody can have. We're going to make it affordable. And that was our vision. And when I uh, opened Grand Daisy, that continued to be the driving factor, make it a great place to work, make really good product, make it accessible, both um, from a uh, understanding perspective and also just a financial perspective for everybody. And um, and that's what I've been doing. And, and that's kind of like is my driving force. And, and people came. People came then and people come now. Uh, came to Grand Daisy when we opened and we have a, I feel really fortunate. So it's a, it's a bake shop and cafe. And then you also have a wholesale business and a yeah, catering we built business. 
A little bit, yes. Well, we built our wholesale business over time. So when we opened Grand Daisy, we were mostly a cafe and we had just a few local restaurants that would pick up. And over time, more and more people came and wanted to have bread for their restaurants. It's actually the majority of our business now is we serve over 200 restaurants. So we, up until last week, we served over 200 restaurants yeah, in the we'll city. Talk about and also, that. Yeah, and then we had like people, um, we have some distributors that buy it and, and uh, buy our bread and take it out to grocery, some small stores, grocery stores and places outside of the city and Whole Foods. And there's a union market is has a few, um, stores in the city and they also buy our bread. So it's it's become that's become a big part of our business and then the sort of the public side of our business is our store and there we're really working on making that perfect cup of coffee. Um, the way that doesn't take so long, the way you know in Italy when you go up to a cafe you just they know you and they hand you your coffee before you even get there if they see you crossing the street. And, uh, and then we make uh, some panini and we have our Roman style pizzas and we have and, and bread and some simple pastries in the Italian tradition where you, after you bake all your bread, you have a little, uh, you have some, you have the oven cooling down and you take a little time and you can then bake the pastries. So they're really simple, not nothing very fancy and definitely like that. So, and then we all, we get our yoga drinks, like the Italian pear juices and stuff and oh. nectar and things, little things that like help you remember those good, ideally help you remember those good experiences when you were in Italy and you just experienced something different oh, so much of that great. has become um yeah thank you so so i say so much of that now we take for granted because that world is now part has spread out so much so there's there are huge venues that sell all these things and it's sort of become commonplace but when, but when started, you started in 2006 it was yeah. not so much yep nope so you have this very diverse staff and it's very important to you. You've you've said that it's one of your priorities um, to really treat your staff particularly well. I think. Can you can you talk about um, what your approach is? Because to your the diversity of the staff and and what their experience is um, with Grand Daisy. So so from the beginning. It, when I, I, I'm an anthropologist and my goal in life was to be a professor of anthropology or work in an NGO and finish my dissertation. And then I got caught up in this baking thing and it and I saw the potential for um, being a place to work that was really good. I had suddenly had control over the work environment versus having worked in so many places where you're not treated fairly or where you're not given opportunities because of the language you speak or the accent you have or all the different things that, um, uh, all the biases that people have and don't allow other people to succeed as a result. So that was a very exciting opportunity. And as an anthropologist, we um, I had training. My I had always worked with different. My let me think. As an anthropologist, what was exciting to me was that I understood a little more about different cultures and why there would be conflict and why there you know where they would people could get along and where we could find common ground. And that's the bakery kind of became that place. So over the years, we had a lot of people from Latin America come in and my goal was like, okay, you may be Latin American or you may be from Central America, but you can be an amazing baker. And that's so exciting to provide that opportunity for you to become a great baker and not just be a porter or something like that. And which is also a great job because we all have great porters. But um, 
So that was very exciting. And then more people from Africa started sort of entering into the baking world. And so we had some bakers that came in from Africa. And then we also had um, some friends from Italy that would come and stay for a while and say, oh, I want to work. And so we would, you know, it was just this huge mix and, and people, and there was conflict. There were things that um, didn't go well. And so we'd have to sit everyone down and say, okay, we're all here. We're, we're working. We're living. We're not living to work. We're working to live. And everybody has to come to work every day, and we all want to just get along. We just need to get our, you know, everyone here has the same interest, and we would stop and talk and, and work through the process. And over the years, um, a lot of people have stayed over 10 years with me at, at the bakery, and um, and it's kind of amazing. And they've uh, and they value this as well, and so they'll work. They understand that when we had a, a whole, um, we also have a lot of people from. Um, South Asia, we have from Tibet and from Bangladesh and from different places. So as over the years, as more and more people come in, the commitment to making sure everybody gets along is really important. And the people who've been here for a long time get it and they work as well. So it's kind of this thing that keeps going. It's really exciting. And most recently, we have um, a group of people. We got a call from a school that is trying to place deaf people. And so we started hiring a few deaf people to work at the bakery and, uh, and, and uh, we developed and everybody was, you know, not everybody, it turns out some of the people actually already spoke sign language who worked at the bakery because they had a deaf friend at some point or whatever. And, um, and then we ended up developing our own sort of deaf language. They called it like our own dialect, like the Grand Daisy dialect, because everybody was, could communicate but it wasn't in ASL, it was in some mm -hmm. variation where, so that was kind of exciting. So we, so we cool. mastered language groups and we mastered like even the ASL and it's been, so at this, at this point we have like this great team of people from all over the world we do, and it's very exciting to me and, and, and it gives me the, the motivation to come to work every day because it's really, I'm a, not a baker by profession, I'm an, and so I'm really a front of the house person and I have all these great people that work with me who make amazing stuff and are really dedicated to the idea of making great handcrafted bread and, and all the other products that we make. And so, and then working together, it's very, so that's it. That's great. And there's also mobility, right? You, people are trained to move up and do different things if they're interested in doing that. That's that's the idea. That's why that's uh that's the goal, and that's and it has been relatively possible. Um, so our head baker, he came into the bakery as a supporter, and now he's I consider him one of the best bakeries bakers in the country. He even uh, we had the um, some awards. What are those? The British Baking. Oh, what is it? I'll. I, well, that we were in an award program, and I don't remember what it is because I that. But it was a British baking contest and he won all the awards it was judged to here in new york and it was a it was all the great you know all the bakeries we know had their head bakers there and he won best ciabatta best uh loaf of bread and best um pizza uh, focaccia uh, a year ago so that was really exciting so he's a and great great baker what's his name um julio julio gorchas and and you said julio started as a porter he started as a porter then What's we, a porter I, in a bake shop? Uh, so in a bake shop, a porter is the person who takes in the orders and sweeps and cleans and okay. you know, does that kind of work. And he um, turned out he actually, in, he's from Guatemala, and he had, um, his father had owned a mill. And so he had been a miller, but his parents had trained, had had him and his brother trained to do embroidery the, or weaving, the kind of Guatemalan weaving. 
that is done. That that beautiful, How incredible. Kind of like, and then he came here. I mean, it's an amazing story. So he's he's like the model. But actually, it's been true of everyone. There's someone else who came in. She came in kind of working retail and supporter. This is Mimi, and now um, she's our floor manager for the day. So she runs the day like all the bakers and the sandwich makers and the pastry person. She's like, and the porters, she's making sure everybody is on the same page. And it's an amazing, I just have seen her grow so much um, over the years. It's, it's been this incredible, she's worked with me for over 10 years. And also she's just gone from being someone who was very shy and didn't have a lot of, well, just didn't have a lot of skills to someone who now can talk to everybody. When we, most recently we had to get in touch with City Harvest is, oh, don't worry, I have their phone. I have their phone number. I'm calling City oh. Harvest and redoing our deliver. I mean, she sort of has everything under control, like she's supposed to, but she has doesn't have a high school education. She doesn't have her GED, but she's a super smart person, and she's able to do so many things. So. It sounds pretty great. So I was looking at your website this morning, and on it, it says something that I'll read, just a little paragraph. It says, and I think this, this is you, you wrote this, we consider ourselves the defenders of handcrafted bread by investing in the people that make it happen, paying good wages, providing fair treatment, and a great work environment for everyone on our team. Good bread is a result of artisans doing the work they love, which in turn brings in a community of appreciative customers and bread lovers who support the work of the artisans and keep the circle going, reinforcing and improving along the way. It sounds like that's... It, you know, it sounds lofty, but then it actually sounds like that is what you're doing in reality. Well, it's 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 a business model, actually, in a way, because if you don't, if you have bakers, it takes five years for a baker to really learn how to bake. So if you bring someone in, and they, and it's happened, even one of um one of the one of the employees that came in a few years ago who's deaf, um, they noticed. They said, "Oh, this guy has like we can tell he's going to be a good baker. He has the build, he has the hands, he has the thing." And so it's taken us three years, and now he can shape bread and he can bake. He's a baker, but it took years, and it's going to take a few more years for him to become a really excellent baker. So you don't want to lose people who, after mm -hmm. you go through the training, and you need to provide them with enough with pay and with uh, an environment that's good. When we opened up the so our Grandaisy Bakery, the original location was on Sullivan Street and we had to open up a new one and we put the bakery upstairs with light outside and tried to make it an open, comfortable mm. space to be in because who wants to work in the basement? I'm in the basement. Right. But who wants to <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, all day, you know, working, you want to be able to see the weather change and different Absolutely. things. So, um that was part Absolutely. of it. That was part of the idea there. So it was, it's um it's a it, it's a commitment. It's an ideal though because you know you can't always pay everyone as much as you want, or you can't mm -hmm. always make the hours perfect because it's a 24-hour bakery. So some people are on a night shift and things. But it's definitely something I'm working towards. And I feel like so many people have stayed uh, working here because it's okay. They wouldn't why be in a place if you're not happy. So. Right. And actually, this is um, maybe an appropriate place to transition and talk about what's happening right now this week. It's been about a week and a half since New York City and lots of places uh, closed all their restaurants and bars um, to customers. And so I, I, you know, I know so many people have lost their jobs. Have you had to um, have you had to lay anyone off? So we so I didn't think of it as laying people off, but I realized 
that's what it is. I had to make a decision a week ago where, well, it started off one day we said, okay, no overtime. And then two days later, okay, we're going to probably put people on three days or four days. And then we realized, oh, we're only going to be able to keep essential staff. So where we had over 80 people, we now have eight. So we had to tell everybody else, we can't pay you. We can't generate enough money to pay you. We don't, I don't have that kind of a credit line or that kind of a savings um, in the back to do it. But so what we're going to do is let you go so you can apply for unemployment and whatever else you need. But, you know, know that this isn't because we don't love you or we don't want you working for us or we don't think you're essential. It's because this is all we can do. And, um, and we've, that's what we've done. So it's, it's horrible. So I'm not getting paid. A few other people have said, I'm not going to get paid. I'm going to come in and work. We know we're going to see this through. Um, and I'm like, well, let's talk. We'll talk every, and we now meet every morning at 10 with a few key people. Say, so what's the status? Why do we stay open? Why are we staying open? Is it, um, and um, is everyone okay? So, and if anyone doesn't want to come into work of the eight people, there's a whole host of people who actually say, oh, we're ready to come if you, if you want us. And um, sure. so that's kind of how we're handling it. I mean, I'm watching the, the um, legislation go through and the SBA loans where they're going to allow people to uh, hire back and, and receive an, a credit for um, any payroll. So if, as soon as I can do that, I will, you know, I'm just oh, on top good. of everything in that way. But it's, okay, that's it's good. pretty much the most horrible feeling to be telling people if you give them their, so this week is the last check because they got paid for last week, the, a check, but last week I'm saying, I'm so sorry. And they're saying, oh, don't worry, boss. It's okay. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not okay. Oh. I'm sorry. This is it. And, call, and and we've been staying in touch with everyone to make sure if anyone is in a precarious situation that we can figure out what we can do. You know, every, I mean, you know, the, and, and, and I think the most that I can do at this point is probably help people with uh, administer, like you have to apply for a home, you know, for, mm -hmm. uh, for unemployment. You need to talk to your landlord. You need to call people and tell them that you're in trouble. And then they will, there are responses, you know, there are holds on credit that people will do and different things. So. It's, it's horrible. horrible. It's horrible it's because horrible. we have, we're at a point, I have to tell you, February was the month where we, we did the best February we've ever done. And it was so nice because we we're like, oh my God, and we never make money in February really because it's a very, very slow month in our business. And we had finally kind of like not lost money. And I was like, this is great. This year it's going to be so beautiful. I'm so excited. We're going to be able to do all these things. And uh, now oh. I have no idea. So I, yeah. I, I was saying earlier, I had said to you at some point, I feel like I'm, um, I'm still in a state of denial because I'm so hopeful, and my nature tends to be very optimistic, and and um, and I do believe that uh, that we will get through this, and that we have a, a lot of goodwill in our community and our restaurants and and with our staff, so that I feel like it will will come through. But it is not a good place. It's not a happy. Mm happy place to be as a person who's worked with everyone and you just are watching them leave and you don't know if they're going to be okay. I worry about everyone's health and I worry about everyone's well-being in terms of having enough to eat and having shelter to shelter in place and all that stuff. Yeah well I was going to ask you um, you're so close to the staff and I know you take as you're saying their welfare so seriously and you're also the mother of a teenager so I'm imagining that you've been in the position to offer perspective, reassurance, encouragement, um, support. 
And so I was wondering if there's something in particular that you've been telling the team and or the teenager that you might share with us. Oh, the teenager is a much harder story. You can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ashley. <laughs> I have one too. Or not, or not. But um, in terms of the staff, the big thing that I tell them is um, if they, anyone who's working, especially if they don't feel well, to not, to not come in and to not worry because people want to come and work or want to do their job because it's what gives them meaning and it's, um, it also it, it gives them pay, but it's a, it's a two-part thing. And, um, and I don't want anyone to feel social pressure because everyone else is in this and they want to be in it as well. So I have to be every day bring that up to them to say it's okay because as soon as we can, I will call you. I, it's not a if this is not if you don't come in and show me that you're dedicated it doesn't mean that i'm not going to i'm going to that's how i would interpret this it's not at all how i would interpret someone you mean they're coming in even though they know they won't be paid just sort of to make sure that they don't lose no their no job. no those no the people who are coming in not to be paid are kind of like at the executive level and just want to make they just see that this is going to be okay and they just want to be in to make sure everything's still running so that's slightly different it's more um we have a couple, we do have some business. So there's some, there are like, uh, there's a, a coffee shop that's uh, next to a wine shop and they're selling a lot of wine as well as everyone comes in and buys a sandwich when they get their wine or whatever. And they're doing really well. And there are a few places, a few grocery stores and a few places. So we're making enough bread to employ two bakers every day. Okay, I wanted to ask you, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I actually meant to ask you this earlier um how have you adapted the business so you obviously can't have people sitting in your cafe but what what are you open for what are you what are you okay. still doing so we have so we do have two bakers baking at night so the bread and how many um, were there so, how many bakers uh, did you there were like at night there were like 12 okay. and um so, and we're shifting the shifts around to make sure that people who need get to some cash or some money can get some. We're trying to balance it out. Um, I suspect some people have easier access to um, unemployment than others. And I'm just trying to make sure everybody has something um, to the extent that they can. And then, uh, and then there are people who can apply for unemployment. So we, so we have those bakers and we have someone who helps pack the bread and then uh, and a driver to deliver some of the bread. And it's all shortened hours because it's not a full shift. If you're driving around for one quarter the amount, we used to have seven drivers, now we only have one or two because you can't work seven days. But the, um, so we've adjusted, so we've shrunk. So we've basically brought everything down, pared everything down to the only the essentials so that we can afford to cover those essentials. And that's, and that's the logic that we're operating on. If we can afford to cover those essentials, then we can stay open as we negotiate with all of our other obligations, loan, rent, insurance, all those things. Um, so, so I'm lucky to have a controller, a general manager here who is coming in and saying, oh, I'm gonna do this because I know we're gonna make it through. And, um, and so that's very fortunate. But the, um, so that's what we're doing there. And then in our retail uh, store, we, we have a, two baristas who can make great coffee and we have the sandwiches and bread and people come in and buy them and leave and take it, they take it out through the window or they walk in and pick it up and take it out. So, and then we have um, a very little bit of the online business that is never big, our big thing. Like 
um, Grubhub and Postmates, no, Grubhub, the uh, the different businesses that have pickup that, that uh, mm -hmm. Uber Eats and things like that. So, mm -hmm. and so the wholesale, because did you just say that? Did I miss that? That the wholesale with restaurants obviously must have dropped off because ah. the restaurants are closed. <laughs> did you already we say that? Everything. No. Yeah. No. I, well. We went from having over 200 to having 10. So the, um, but, but the 10 are not with, with them, they, they count on us. And so there's this, that's where that thing where we meet every morning and say, so is it worth staying up? Why are we here? So it's essential in the sense that we're providing, it is a place where the community comes in, in Tribeca, people are walking their dogs, they're just taking a walk or even from farther away, they're riding their bike, they're just getting out and they need a place and this is a destination. So it provides like a goal and then they go home with a loaf of bread and I completely understand that. Um, for other, and, and so on that level, it's good. And then, um, so we feel like we're providing an important service as well as food and milk and a few basics that we have here. And then also, um, for, for the whole, from on the wholesale side, we, we have a series of people who are still buying from us who need bread and who say, we're only in business because you're able to sell us bread and we're able to make sandwiches and sell them. So, but that, no pressure, that, Monica. Yeah, no, I know, right? Well, I, I, we still meet every morning and say, is this still working? Because as soon as it's not, I'm going to have to say, no, it's not working and we can't do this because it won't be. So I... We're in week one, really. We're ending toward. We're going heading towards the mm -hmm. end of week one, and I don't know what next week will hold. What if, if anyone gets sick, I'm going to have to stop and uh, entirely, and right. that will have an effect or or anything like that. So it's so important that everyone stays well, that they take care of themselves, that if anyone uh, doesn't come in, if they're feeling anything, and that they don't feel yeah. the pressure, and that we just keep our spirits up. Some people are um, here, and they're just they come in every day with a super positive attitude and they're so and they're like well you know we've got to make two what are we can do be depressed let's keep going we can clean the bakery really well so two uh -oh. guys are like taking extra time to clean everything even more than usual <laughs> good that's, that's amazing good. the human spirit and it's wonderful i mean i think you you foster such a environment of positive you know loving energy that it comes back to you and the people that you hire, well, obviously you probably also pick them because of, you know, because you feel that from them. I think uh, a lot of people pick you. You don't get to pick that much. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to have had people come through. Actually, today I was up uh, getting a coffee in the store and could be, and this person said, hi, you remember me? I used to work here 13 years ago. <laughs> it's like, no. But I said, take off your hat. And then he had no hair left. I was like, oh. <laughs> But it's like a kid coming back to their school, like their elementary school. Yeah, like, remember so me, he, teacher? He said, I brought you yeah, exactly. But he came and he brought and he brought a friend and he said, well, we thought we'd buy something because we're here and we we're going to, you know, walking by and, and just doing our walk because a lot of people just need to go out and walk a little bit and do something right now as part of the shelter in place. You need to get out and get some air. So that was a very sweet thing. Oh. Just of, of people finding you and then sort of staying and then he had worked with three or four other people and they all are still in touch and even the people who leave and that aren't happy they end up getting married and I you know I just remember I, I thought anyway, that's a cool married story. to one another like yes. two people who worked here you've had, you've had yeah. couples they quit married. they left and then they ended up meeting somewhere else and getting married like that is awesome 
That is really <laughs> great. That's so awesome. Oh, well, oh my goodness. It sounds like um, this is an incredibly tough time, but you are doing an amazing job. Um, wow. Can I ask you, I want to, I, I think you sort of may have answered, I'm, I think you sort of may have answered this question already at the beginning of our conversation, but I didn't ask the question formally. And so I wanna ask in case you do have um, a different answer or, uh, or more full answer. So the question that I ask everyone in the Life, Death and Dinner podcast is, what in your background, whether it was a person, an event, a situation, a place, um, most motivated you to do what you are doing in the food world and how, I mean, and then how that product that you make, the food or the whatever, um, reflects that motivation. Um, and I know you talked about your grandmother and that may be it, but I, I also know that you, as you said, what were in anthropology and you were going to become an anthropologist. So there must have been a moment where or something or you know a situation so what was it i i think about this a lot because i try to figure out what happened why i didn't finish my dissertation but <laughs> that might have been the moment because it was so much more fun to do bakery than dissertation but um i think it was a a a, a number of things so my grandmother was an amazing influence and we loved bread and we talked about bread and there's a kind of bread that's made in Bolivia called the majaqueta, and it's a, it looks a lot like our pugliese, only smaller, and the, the market women or the, the, these ladies sit on the street and have it all wrapped in, in cloth, and they, you go down, you buy that. Every morning you go get a majaqueta, you put butter and jam on it, and that's, you have that with your coffee for breakfast. And it was such a part of my, I had lived in Bolivia as a child, and that was just so part of who I was. So when I was in a space where we were making bread that was so close to that, it was really powerful for me. At the same time, so that's one element. The, my grandmother being so, um, being so uh, connected to the kitchen and to food and to making great food and, and really interesting food that was so much part of my identity being an American kid, but eating all these things that nobody ate, <laughs> that nobody had even heard of, and that had names in Aymara and Quechua, so nobody, not even the Spanish-speaking people knew them. You know, the, the chuño, which is the age, the potatoes that are freeze-dried and are black, and that like is how the people from Tiwanaku lived forever, was because they were able to store these during times of drought, and things like that. So that was a huge influence. And then... Um, but then when I went back and did my field work in, um, in Bolivia, I had worked with, uh, I worked in a peasant community and I was, that uh, one of the ways the women raised money to be able to send their kids to school to buy the supplies, because basically they had to buy pencils and notebooks and pay the teachers. And they would, they would have um, their husbands build these little ovens in the back of their house and they would bake bread and sell bread. And so that was a huge thing also. And so I thought all these things sort of came together. And then I ended up meeting someone who was opening up a bakery and needed help running it. And it all just happened in such a great way. But the, the way that I, and, and it just works. And so I was like, this is great. It gives meaning to me in so many different ways. And then getting to work with people who spoke Italian and French and 
Spanish and English and, and get to use all the languages and understand the different cultures and see all the different things going on and bring them together. And that was just icing on the cake. And you realized that it was connected to what you right. had been doing to some it, extent. Right. It was sort of like the applied anthropology side of the anthropology. I got to do what I had loved doing and studying for so many years, and I got to live it and, and make use of those skills in a, in a work environment. And it was just so, so meaningful. And it still is. I mean, I'm still just moved. Even, I mean, every day, even like now through this experience, um, I, um, it, there's just been stuff that's happened that's been so special. Um, one of the people who works here, when we were talking to Mimi, she said to me, she, so we're saying, well, we don't really need you and we can't pay you. So you, we need you to apply for unemployment. We want to call you back. And she said, you don't need me. Do you not want me here? Is that what you're trying to say? Because I'm going to come anyway. Because <laughs> you need me to do these things. And I will be here because you were the person who didn't care that I spoke with an accent, who didn't care about anything, uh, about um how good I was or whether I could, um, you know, do the job. Now, what she said, she said, you didn't care. You've always been there for me and I am here for you now because you have been there for all of us. And it was like, a, it was, um, it was an amazing moment. I still wanted her to stay home, but now, but she comes in for a few hours every day to make sure everything's okay. And I'm so grateful to her because it's true. She's the person who runs the floor and has learned everything. <sighs> just a hard it's a hard one to talk to think about whatever it, it sounds like this is a, if there's anything positive in this situation it is finding the expansiveness and generosity of so many people who are trying to help each other yes it's the generosity and then the uh, the gratitude that goes along with that are the things that are kind of like binding us together and holding us so that we can keep going forward. Absolutely. I feel like that is a beautiful, sad, beautiful place to end. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And um, you're, in spite of it being... Uh, a very dark time, you're a ray of sunshine. I mean, your philosophy is amazing and your action, you know, that you take based on your philosophy. And it sounds like you have taken these ideals and put them into practice in your business. And it's just, it's, it's inspiring. Thank you, Liza. That's beautiful too. <laughs> Thank you. I'm 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 so glad to get a chance to talk to you about it too. It makes me um have to think it through and realize how absolutely lucky I am all the time. Oh. <laughs> well, that's 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 great. I'm glad and um I feel lucky to have spoken to you today. So thank you very very much and good luck with everything and we Thanks. we'll get through this. Okay. Well, I'll keep you posted. Thank you. You too. Good right. luck with everything. Stay well. Be safe. You too. And, uh, All right. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. 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 Ain't nothing I can do. Hey, 
listeners, thanks for checking out the Life, Death, and Dinner podcast, where I ask culinary professionals what in their histories motivated them to do what they do with food. To read about my motivation behind Life, Death, and Dinner, and to check out my recipes and stories, go to lifedeathanddinner.com.